0: are now listening to the february 24th broadcast of unity in christ this hour we have let's read the bible a sermon and respectable sins first let's begin with let's read the bible
1: Hello Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners, this is Justin Kong with Let's Read the Bible. After Adam sinned against God, mankind was banished from the Garden of Eden. After that, no one was able to enter the presence of God. But as time passed, God chose Abraham and made a covenant with him and promised him a land and many descendants. Out of Abraham came Isaac, and from Isaac was born a son named Jacob. This Jacob had 12 sons, and God changed Jacob's name to Israel. This is how the nation of Israel came into existence. Out of Israel came the prophet Moses, who as a mediator between God and Israel received the law of God. Included in these laws were instructions on how to offer sacrifices to God. When the people of Israel gave sacrifices to God according to the laws given through Moses, God forgave their sins. Sinful men could not see God and could not have fellowship with God. However, God directed Israel to build a tabernacle where he would dwell. Sacrifices for sin would be offered and would be a place of worship. God is joyful when people's sins are forgiven. This is why giving sacrifices or worshipping is very important. It gave the people who sinned a way to meet with God. People of Israel gave sacrifices to God each year this way and went into the presence of God, but as they gave sacrifices to God repeatedly, they started to forget something that was more important than worshipping. What do you think that was? More important than giving sacrifices to God is obeying Him. People would not have to give sacrifices if people obeyed God. There would not have been a need for giving sacrifices. That is why it is more important to obey God than giving sacrifices. Do you think God will be joyful when people give sacrifices after they sin or when they obey God so they do not sin and don't have to give sacrifices? Obviously, it would be the latter. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul failed to obey God when he did not sacrifice the fat animals as God has commanded. However, he tried to please God by offering what he considered to be a better offering. But the prophet Samuel in verse 22 asked this question. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Prophet Samuel said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. A similar verse is in Proverbs chapter 21, which we will read today together. It's verse 3. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Proverbs 21 has much advice on how to be wise in decision-making and actions that must be obeyed. What makes God joyful is obeying his words, not giving sacrifices. I hope we will all be able to put the word of God in our hearts and live our lives by obeying them so we can make God joyful. Let's read Proverbs chapter 21, verses 1 to 31 together. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked, produce sin. The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. The violence of the wicked will drag them away, for they refuse to do what is right. The way of the guilty is devious, but the conduct of the innocent is upright. Better to live on a corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. The wicked crave evil, their neighbors get no mercy from them. When a mocker is punished, the simple gain wisdom. By paying attention to the wise, they get knowledge. The righteous one takes note of the house of the wicked and brings the wicked to ruin. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. A gift given in secret soothes anger, and a bribe concealed in the cloak pacifies great wrath. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous but terror to evildoers. Whoever strays from the path of prudence comes to rest in the company of the dead. Whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. The wicked became a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. One who is wise can go up against the city of the mighty and pull down the stronghold in which they trust. Those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. The proud and arrogant person, Mocker is his name, behaves with insolent fury. The craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable How much more so when brought with evil intent? A false witness will perish, but a careful listener will testify successfully. The wicked put up a bold front, but the upright give thought to their ways. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. We just read Proverbs chapter 21 verses 1 to 31 together.
2: Spirit come make us humble We turn our eyes From evil things Oh Lord we cast down our idols So give us clean hands And give us pure hearts Let us not lift our souls to another and give us clean hands and give us pure hearts let us not lift our souls to another oh god let us be a generation that seeks who seeks your Give us your heart. Let us not lift our souls to our love. Oh God, let us be a gem. Gent-
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Moving in the Right Direction. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Well, let's go to Acts chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said, Farewell and departed for Macedonia. What's the uproar? It was this riot that occurred in Ephesus. Why? Because Christians were making an impact on society. The sales of idol, the profits from idol trinkets and the profit from idolatry and all the commerce that was centered around the great temple of Artemis there, one of the seven wonders of the world, had been dinged by Christians, the preaching of Christianity. I mean, no Christians were protesting in front of the Temple of Artemis, you understand. It was the life-changing power of Jesus Christ that set them free from the pagan life, the gross immorality and all that that was a part of that whole worship. And so th- the end result was there was this huge riot. Everybody went into this the largest stadium outside of the Colosseum in the world, and they went into the stadium, the population, they had a riot, and they were just chanting for hours, great is Artemis, or Diana is of the Ephesians, great, she just went on and went on and went on. And uh, they wanted to drag Paul out, you know, he would have been torn apart by the mob, So all of it got quelled. The riot was quelled when one of the officials said, hey, you better calm down or we're going to get in trouble with the Roman government because we cannot riot. So they all quieted down. But Paul had already made uh, intentions to leave and go to other places. So after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraged them, he said, farewell. He knew that they were going to need to know how to continue on without him. So he gave them words of encouragement, probably some words of caution, warning, correction, possibly. So Paul left Ephesus, and his first stop was Corinth in the province of Macedonia. Corinth was always on Paul's mind. It was a great church, but it was a problem church. If you read First and Second Corinthians, you imagine what Paul was going through and trying to shepherd. He wasn't the pastor of the church, but all the problems got passed up to him. And so he was having to write letters of correction. He was very stern in his letters. Um, he sent him a letter, the First Corinthians, and he hadn't gotten word back as to whether they had received it, like accepted what he had told them, the corrections and all that he had told them to change their lifestyles. And this is what a church should do and shouldn't do. And he was worried, okay? He's a pastor. He he loves the church. He founded that church. It was a big church. And so he wanted to get there and find out what is going on. Verse 2 says, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Here's something I want you to be aware of that, that we don't see because we don't have like a timeline in front of us. But let me tell you something that we have found out by correlating this time with something else he wrote. Uh, we know that when Paul arrived in Corinth and he's having to face this problem and he's going to face people who say he's not a true apostle. Can you imagine? He starts their church and there are people who now say he's not a real apostle. They don't have to listen. So he's facing this kind of stuff. And we know by his own admission, he was very spiritually depressed. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and it's verse 8. The apostle says, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia, We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. The New International Version translates it this way. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within... Listen, this is the Apostle Paul. Hey, he's my hero. How about yours? But he's so human. I'm so glad I'm hearing this. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul is in this spiritually depressed place, and he's having to face conflict. I mean, he's weak right now, right? Right? I know a lot of us have been spiritually depressed. You might just deal with depression, period. For years, I've dealt with clinical depression. I mean, that's something I've lived with. And so there's encouragement for you if you're going through that kind of thing. I know what you're going through. I can also tell you the power of Christ can help us through those times. But you don't have a clinical, you don't have to have a clinical kind of thing. We go through spiritual times of depression where we're just like, ah, what is going on, Lord? I just feel so bad. You know, you might be surprised how many men and women who've been used by God have suffered from or do suffer from depression. Years ago, I was given a copy of a book called Lectures to My Students. And it's by a guy named C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon, he was pastor of the world's largest church in the 1800s in London. He was the first man whose messages went around the world on Monday because the messages were taken down and then they were put in print and every newspaper around the world printed his messages worldwide ministry for the first time word of God going forward. He founded his church, Metropolitan Tabernacle, was a mega church, and he founded a pastors' college because he wanted pastors to learn the Word. And it wasn't like a theological seminary. This was like a Bible college. Hey, the training was great, but he wanted to see a lot of guys get out there to teach, and men and women. So they went out there, and um, he gave lectures. And so this was lectures to my students. One lecture he gave is titled, The Minister's Fainting Fits. That's kind of an old way of saying the minister, the pastors, the time when they get so low, they get so depressed, fainting fits. Listen to what he shared with a class of people training to be pastors and Christian workers. So this is what he says. He says, our work, when earnestly undertaken, lays us open to attacks And the direction of depression, who can bear the weight of souls without someone sinking to the dust? Passionate longings after men's conversion, if not satisfied, and he says, and when are they, consume the soul with anxiety and disappointment. To see the hopeful turn aside, the godly grow cold, those who profess Christ abusing their privileges and sinners waxing more bold in sin, are these not sights that are enough to crush us to the earth? It's writing again to Christian leaders, all mental work tends to weary and to depress, for much study is a weariness of the flesh, but ours is more than mental work. It is heart work, the labor of our inmost soul. How often... On Lord's Day evenings, do we feel as if life were completely washed out of us? Talk to Christian workers, that's how they feel Sunday evening, afternoon. After pouring out our souls over our congregations, we feel like empty earthen pitchers, which a child might break. He goes on to say, glory be to God for the furnace, the hammer, and the file. The lesson of wisdom is, be not Dismayed by soul trouble. Count it no strange thing but a part of ordinary ministerial experience. Should the power of depression be more than ordinary, think not at all that it's over with your usefulness. Cast not away your confidence for it has great recompense of reward. Even if the enemy's foot be on your neck, expect to rise and overthrow him. Amen. Cast the burden of the present along with the sin of the past and the fear of the future upon the Lord, who does not forsake his saints, live day by day. I, by the hour, put no trust in frames or feelings. Yea, Spurgeon, as a Christian leader, pastor, and you guys are working for God in different areas, you have your ministries, you heard what he had to say. You know, you can get tired in ministry, right? But they don't get tired of their ministry. Those of you who teach Sunday school and it's been a year after year thing and just love what you're doing, sometimes you get tired in it, but not tired of it. Some of you are never tired of anything because you're not doing anything. (laughs) Truly. You say, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, if you get busy for Jesus, you'd understand. You get tired in serving the Lord, but I never get tired of it. You know, it's, it's a calling. You're called to serve God's people, and some of you are feeling that tugging to serve God's people. Now, during this time, though, that I'm discussing, Paul was in Corinth. Guess what he wrote? Probably the most significant book in the New Testament, the most important theology of salvation that's ever been written in the midst of all of that. Here's the Apostle Paul putting it together that wonderful book of Romans. Man, the Apostle Paul wasn't just concerned though about making converts only, he wanted to make disciples. You know, when we preach the gospel, we lead people to Christ, we see them come to Christ then it's important for us to teach them God's word and disciple them. The word of God does the work of God. You believe that? God's word, when received and believed and practiced, will change your life. You know, we start out as babies, and babies are cute, aren't they? But if someone stays a baby, it wouldn't be right, would it? How old is your baby? 36 years old. (laughs) There's something wrong there, right? That's tragic. But you see, a lot of Christians are born, but they never grow up. Really, if someone were to quit growing or someone were not be able to mature past four or five years of age, it is sad. We never graduate from God's school of discipleship. Well, wait. The day we graduate is the day we go to be with the Lord, right? That's the day we graduate, and we don't know anymore. We don't need to know anymore. But until that day, we're learning, learning, learning God's word. Now, let's look at Acts 23 through 6. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he about to sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So, He wanted to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, and so he was going to go on a boat that was headed that way, but fortunately, by the grace of God, uh, there was a plot discovered to take his life, either on the uh, dock or on ship they would have done him in. So they found out, so he couldn't go by sea, so he had to go by land a different direction, and uh, it wasn't going to happen. His plans were ruined, and he had to go to a different way. And so he ended up celebrating Passover in Philippi, not what he wanted to do. And you ever have your plans disappointed, disappointed because God didn't do what you were hoping he would do? And we're going to see in a bit how had he not, that had not happened, and he had this change, some cool stuff wouldn't have happened. So, on his way, he picks up some friends. He decided at the end of verse three. He decided to return through Macedonia. Uh, so Potter, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. Now, remember, there was a church established in Berea, little church, and now there 's a grown up leader. Paul led this guy to Christ, and now he is probably an elder in that church, and he is going to represent this church in, um, well, maybe I should tell you what's going on here first. Paul, it was pressed upon Paul to take a collection for the needy brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, at the Jerusalem church. I call it the mother church, you know. They were poor, poverty-stricken The first reason was because of terrible persecution. Church started out with tens of thousands of believers, but soon there was terrible persecution, and they were scattered out into Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus said would happen. Then they tried kind of a failed idea of communal living. You know, everybody sold what they had and made a common pot and and distributed it, and that really didn't work out very well. And then more persecution, and they couldn't get jobs, families shunned them, so they were in a bad way. And Paul knew, he heard about that, and he says, well, I want to do something about this. And so he decided that it would be good to take a collection for the Jerusalem church, And the collection would come from all the different churches that he had planted throughout this whole Gentile region that he had spent his uh, Galatia, I'm spacing the the provinces, but from all these Gentile provinces. So he had told them, you know, gather the offerings, not separate from what you give to the Lord, but you gather an extra offering And then we're going to come by and we'll collect it and we'll take it to Jerusalem. It turned out to be a huge offering from all of these churches. He was bridge building at that point because the church in Jerusalem, and I don't want to speak badly about them, but they had an attitude about the Gentile believers. There was still some diehards in the Jerusalem church that really felt like the Gentiles needed to be Jews first and then accept Christ. They had to do, go through a Jewish ritual of conversion. Then they would believe in Christ. So there were still some, that, you know, the Gentiles were less than as believers. Never that I know of really supported the missionary work of Paul. So here is Paul. He says, I want all of you Gentile churches that weren't even supported by the Jerusalem church, I want all you churches now, let's give this huge offering to bless our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Isn't that a sweet gesture of love, you guys? Brotherly love? So on the way, representatives from these different provinces joined Paul on the way to Jerusalem. Now, these are where the friends come in, okay? So I thought... That would be a better way. So the first person was uh, Soper, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonicans, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby. That's another church. There was a church there in Thessalonica. And Timothy and the Asians Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, that's Passover, and five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, the same trip by sea, the first time it took two days. The same trip now took five days. Well, what does that tell you? If you're on the sea and the first time it took two days and it takes five days this time, what does it tell you? It wasn't a very pleasant trip, right? It had to be stormy. It had to be winds contrary to them. A bad trip, but they arrived there. That's just a little side thing. So he's accompanied by these friends. Friends help you get through stuff, don't they? They really help you get through stuff. Somebody you can trust. Somebody you can pour your heart out to. Somebody you can have fun with somebody you can learn the word of God with. These men were friends of Paul, and the New Testament records that they were involved in Paul's life until he died. I was saying, I didn't realize Aristarchus accompanied Paul to Rome and stayed with him, listen to that, even as a prisoner. We read in Acts chapter 27. So somehow Aristarchus followed Paul and either Aristarchus got arrested because he was with Paul or he went into the jail and sat with Paul. Sopater helped take care of Paul in Rome, we're told in Romans 16. Tychicus was often used by Paul as a trusted envoy to take messages or letters from Paul to different kinds of churches. You need somebody you can trust to do that, make sure the job gets done. Trophimus, he traveled with Paul after he was released in Rome, but Trophimus got sick. He had to be left behind until he got well, so that's a whole story we read about in 2 Timothy. They were friends for life. They traveled with Paul, not only for friendship's sake, but also as representatives of those three provinces, and to protect the offering, it was a huge amount of money, and there was robbers and all sorts of threats on these roads. And they also, I'm sure Paul was thinking, look, I don't want there to be the appearance of evil at all. I don't want to be carrying the offering. I want the other brothers to be in charge of carrying the money. I don't want to be the guy, the Christian leader, who somebody could look at twice and say, oh. Now, let's look at verse five and then look at verse six. These men went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Tell me what's happened. It's not not a destination. It has nothing to do with the travel. It's a pronoun. It's been Luke reporting, and they, and they, and they, and all of a sudden, Luke is back in the picture. It's and what? And we, so Luke is back. Paul had put Luke in charge of the church in Philippi and Paul went on and left Luke behind. And now Luke is back with the group. And so now Luke writes in the first person. So, and now we, so we know he's back with the gang as well. And you know, that's important because Luke's presence at Paul's side was essential Everybody was worried about the Apostle Paul. He was sick. He was frail. He needed to be cared for, okay? So Luke became probably his best friend. If You know, I don't like to talk about best friends, but I would say his closest friend. Luke was with him to the very end. John Phillips in his commentary on Acts says this, and he says it better than I could, so I'm going to read it to you. No doubt, Luke's presence was a great comfort to Paul, who was not a well man. The constant abuse of his body by violent men, by exposure to the elements in storm and shipwreck, and by his divinely appointed thorn in the flesh, all added up to continuous pain and suffering. That did not daunt Paul. All in all, he traveled 5,580 miles by land, facing all kinds of hardship and danger. 5,580 miles, he traveled by walked, And 6,770 miles by sea in little tipsy boats at the mercy of wind, sun, and storm. Totally 12,350 perilous miles. He evangelized in the area of 1,500 square miles in less than 16 years. Lining churches everywhere. Yet, Paul was a sick man in constant need of the services of a physician. Luke became Paul's constant companion right to the end of life. At the end, just before he died, he, Paul writes, only Luke is with me. Ivor Powell said, Luke ministered to Paul's body. Paul was a physician for Luke's soul. Now, look at verse 7. On the what day of the week? First day of the week. What's the first day of the week? Not Monday. It's what? Sunday's the first day of the week. Yeah, A lot of people used to say Monday, Sunday, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There's a preacher's license to preach a long time. (laughs) On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together, this is the first mention of the early church meeting on Sunday. The only day that is mentioned after Jesus rose from the dead that he appeared to his disciples is on a Sunday. When we know the day, every time the day is mentioned after his resurrection that Jesus met with his disciples was a Sunday, not a Sabbath, not any other day. It was a Sunday. The Lord was establishing the fact that this is his day. The early church called Sunday the Lord's Day. Say that, the Lord's Day. Sunday is the Lord's Day. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, the apostle John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. So believers met on Sunday. Here it was, the Jewish reckoning of time was from sunset to sunset. So they met on the first day of the week. Uh, it was in the evening. We'll know. We'll, we'll look at it later. It was in an evening. Most slaves worked. 80% of the empire, I think, were slaves. And so they didn't get the daytime offs, but they got the evening, so they'd come in the evening on the first day of the week. So on the first day of the week, we gathered together to what? Break bread. What is that? The Lord's Supper. Justin Martyr was a Gentile born in Flavia, Neapolis. He was one of the early church fathers. So Justin Martyr, in his writings, details a description of Christian worship. It's the first time that the details of Christian worship are written by a Christian. So this is what he says. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. It's a long service. Then when the reader has ceased, the president, that's the leader of the church, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. In other words, then they exposit the text. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent, saying amen. But Sunday is a day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, in the same day rose from the dead. So the early church worshiped, gathered together on Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it says, look back, I want to point something out, verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were what? Did it say, gathered together. The word for that in Greek is a formal meeting of the church. It's not a home Bible study. They would gather together formally on the first day of the week. They would worship God. They'd read the scriptures. They'd pray. They'd celebrate the Lord's Supper. Formal gathering. That same word is used in Hebrews 10.25 when the writer of Hebrews says... And do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. In other words, don't stay away from the assembly church like some have gotten to the habit of doing. Hello? Is it your habit to come once a month Now you're on thin ice, brother. (laughs) Just saying. How many Sundays are there? 52 in a year, right? So how many times are you getting fed the word of God? How many times? You know, it's just not this teaching that's important. It's the gathering together of, of the people of God. We realize we're not alone. Amen? I'm not alone. Look at all this support and encouragement I have from the body of Christ. I can't worship like this by myself. I have my worship time with the Lord. I do that. But it's not like this. The trend now is that Christians only come to church twice a month. That is the average. With now a trend moving to three times a month, they are not at church. It's not a suggestion that we gather together. When it says in do not forsake, it is in Greek a command form, okay? It's a command. So you got to start a new one, amen? It's been important for 2,000 years, and there's a reason for that. Hello? Amen. Amen.
3: find this friend forsake him. No, not one, no, not one. Poor sinner find that he would not take him. No, not
4: one, no, not one.
3: Jesus knows all
5: you can find all the programs of heart and soul on podcasts you can easily play this week's or past week's program or even download them on your device in just a few minutes search for heart and soul at your itunes stores now
0: the following program is called respectable sins
5: Dear listeners, this is Terry, the host of Respectable Sins. We have been discussing the book Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate by Jerry Bridges. We have been examining what sins we tolerate in our lives and how to deal with them. Do you ever get angry? What recent event made you angry? Are you still angry? Nowadays, when we watch the news, we often see incidents where people get angry and get out of control resulting in road rage or even violence. Some may cut in front of another driver or a neighbor may make too much noise late into the night. And people get angry and feel justified to be angry. Being angry and even becoming uncontrollably angry seems more prevalent than ever before. So what is anger? The author Jerry defines anger as a strong feeling of displeasure or a resentful mind. He explains that this anger can lead to sinful words and action causing harm and pain to the other people. When we get angry, we often say things like, that person made me angry, that situation made me angry. However, Jerry firmly states that it's not someone else or something external that causes our anger. Although someone's word or action can trigger our anger, the true causes lie deep within ourselves, often rooted in our pride, selfishness, or desire to control others. In other words, it's not the other person but the sin within us that makes us angry. We might get angry because someone treated us disrespectfully or gossiped about us. Is there something else behind mistreatment or gossip that is causing the anger? We become angry because our reputation or character might become tarnished. In other words, the real cause of anger is rooted in our pride. Furthermore, we get angry when things don't go our way. This happens to a child or a grown-up alike. If things don't happen as we desire, we get angry. This happens in marriages, families, and larger communities. People with strong personalities who insist on projecting their opinions may try to control a given situation, but they get angry when someone opposes them. In all these examples, selfishness operates as a root cause. In short, it's a selfish desire to do things our way that leads to anger. Looking at it this way, it becomes evident that the source of anger lies within our hearts, not in external factors. However, many people try to deflect the responsibility for their anger and they attribute it to others. They blame someone else. They might say, that person's word or action made me angry. They are likely to hit back with hurtful words or some form of criticism. Some may hold grudges or even harbor ill intentions while suppressing their anger within. Such reactions only perpetuate the anger. That anger is a sin and it may pose a spiritual danger. Anger can easily escalate into progressively worsening negative emotions. If we don't address anger right away, it can grow into hatred, leading to resentment and even thoughts of revenge. As anger simmers and gets entrenched a person's mind, it can lead to hatred and eventually to dangerous state of bitterness. Hatred deepens, festers, and can develop into a dark state of mind known as animosity. For instance, in the Bible, we see Esau harboring anger against Jacob. He eventually plotted to kill him. A brother meditating murder of his own brother is one consequence of anger. Herodias, too, bore a grudge against John the Baptist for condemning her for her sinful deeds. She succumbed to her anger and sought to have him executed. We know she eventually succeeded. These examples show how anger, through the growing hatred and hurt pride, can lead to a terrifying consequence. As mentioned earlier, we might get shocked at hearing about incidents like road rage or neighbors resorting to violence due to noise issues. We might think to ourselves, could people really kill over such trivial matters? However, anger certainly can, and as such, it is a terrifying sin. So what can we do about anger? The Bible advises us not to let the sun go down while we are still angry. Then how can we handle anger in a way that glorifies God? We can do that by acknowledging and recognizing the sinful nature of anger within ourselves we must admit that anger exists within us. Without acknowledging the presence of anger, we cannot address it. Take a pause when you feel angry and ask yourself why. Instead of reacting immediately, wait for a minute and with your mouth shut, think things through. Ask yourself, is my anger stemming from my pride, selfishness, or some other hidden motive within me? Reflect on the real reasons behind your anger. Once you recognize your anger, you can repent the sin of anger. Then you could change your attitude toward the person who triggered your anger. Let go of the angry expressions and through prayer, stop harboring hostility and speaking out harsh words. Cherry suggests three ways to manage anger. First, always rely on God's sovereignty. If a situation arises that make you angry, remember that whatever led to your anger happened under the sovereign plan of God. Even the events that triggered your anger have been purposely under God's reign. They are meant to make us become more like Jesus. Joseph's brother's anger against him turned into animosity, and they planned to kill him. Yet, they couldn't kill him and ended up selling him to a neighboring country. After going through this journey, Joseph confessed in Genesis 45.8 that it was not his brothers who sent him there, but God. Having firm faith in God's sovereignty is the first defense when anger arises. Second, Jerry suggests praying for the ability to grow in love. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. 1 Peter 4, 8. When someone belittles or behaves inappropriately, remember that love can help overlook these actions. Love can cover many wrongs. Conflicts can easily arise when we receive hurtful words particularly when those words come from someone close to us. However, whether we react with anger or not is a choice we make. Even though we may have been deeply hurt, we can choose not to get angry at the person who caused the pain. When we love that person deeply, we find ourselves less prone to anger. Last, to manage anger, learn to forgive others as God has forgiven you. Did you know that forgiveness requires practice? A helpful Bible passage for practicing forgiveness is the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21-35. The message of the parable is clear. Compared to the debt we owe to God, the moral debt from the wrongdoings of others is trivial. Of course, this doesn't mean that the pain and hurt we feel from others' actions are insignificant. Nevertheless, in spite of the pain we experience, we could hurt others as well. Even more profoundly, we've caused deep pain and hurt to our loving God. Yet God gave His son for us and forgave our sins. When anger rises within us and when resentment grows, we should pray, Lord, I am a servant who has been forgiven by you. I want to forgive the other person's mistake. Of course, praying like this may not erase our anger because the power of sin is strong. Nevertheless, we should pray because when we start praying like this, we are moving in the right direction in our battle against our anger. Let us strive not to fall into the sin of anger. This concludes our discussion from Respectable Sins.
4: so e